0: right good morning everyone let's turn the lights on for you just look at that there they are the lights good morning everyone it's just so good to see you guys i loved that jeff was going through announcements he's like you can listen to these teachings and stuff when you're you know driving or on a run or in the woods i was like in the woods what are you guys doing in the woods okay so you can, you can listen everywhere i like that um Man, yeah, I. Uh, this is a uh, you know every spring for us just as a family with our different activities our girls have going on and and uh, different things that they kind of this time of the year get themselves involved into. It's kind of a busy uh, season of year just family wise, and then of course with life church, uh, there's a busyness uh, in one sense or another, just ministry wise, church wise. But, uh, as Jeff is just talking about life groups and everything, Christina and I, we just so look forward to this time. you know there's just something about um, when we go to the the home where we where our group meets, when i just it 's like i can 't wait to sit in that couch I just can 't wait I have like my spot that I want to be, you know, and I just like get in that couch and uh for for me the thing that i love about it is there's so many things to to just like think about in life there's so many you know decisions to make and uh there's a there's a lot of responsibilities you know in life and a lot of things that are concerns or whatever but just like sitting there, I don't know, it's different. I have a couch in my house too, but there's just something different about just kind of sitting there with these other believers and just knowing like, you know, we're, I'm going to hear from them and I'm going to hear what's going on with them and I'm going to be able to share what's going on with me and we're just going to just be together for a period of time. It is so, I, f- I feel like it's just so contrary to the flow of normal culture and society and like the pace of life and everything right now to just have to stop. You just have to stop. You put your phones away and you just stop and you just look at each other. There's no TV. There's no other noise. It's just you and the Lord and these other people. And it's just precious. So I'm just really looking forward to it. It takes work to get there for sure. And there's nights where like we're driving out there. I'm like, man, I'm tired. But then there's something refreshing about it just being there. So I can't explain it, but I'm just really looking forward to it. So I hope you get to experience the joy of that this quarter as well. Today we're in uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 9 to 20. And um, I want to... as we're moving verse by verse through the book of Romans. Uh, Today what I want to do is, I don't always do this, but I want to read through the whole passage together first. Just kind of see where we're going, read the whole text, and then pray and uh, get into uh, God's Word. So you guys there? Romans 3? You guys there? Okay, you got your Bibles? Romans 3. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so here we go. Uh, Verse 9, Paul had been talking about the, um, the, the fact that you can't be saved through re- religion, especially and specifically the religion of Old Testament Judaism. And so he says in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they, verse 12, have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, verse 13, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, verse 15, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin. And misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes the knowledge of sin and and I know what you're thinking this morning you're thinking that what a coincidence that is a perfect Valentine's Day text (laughs) (laughs) happy Valentine's Day let's pray and we'll get into uh, God's word we Lord we just thank you so much for your word and the truth Lord and just being able to get a real perspective about the world that we're living in the way things work and seeing Lord the uh, not just the light kind of statement that there is sin, but seeing how deep sin has gone, so Lord, help us this morning as we consider uh, the fact that we are under sin in this world and that it is very um, it has spread very far and the, just the the planet, the Earth, and the way things are, and Lord, that you want us to have a knowledge of sin, I think initially and continually, so Lord, help us in that process, and as we think about these things this morning, we pray that they would really shape and color. Uh, in one sense or another, the way in which we look at the world that we're living in. So we, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you that you have rescued us from this by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, but we pray that you'd give us understanding as we move through this text today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. I usually try to um, just kind of my weekly flow, it doesn't always happen, but I try to finish Preparing the teachings for Sunday on Thursday. It's kind of like the goal that I have. It doesn't always happen, but I like doing that because I like for a couple of days um, just being able to think about the concepts and the applications and the scripture that we're going to be in on Sunday morning uh just without having to prepare but just kind of thinking about it like how does this you know apply and everything and this last week i was successful i'm not always successful it's like you know you know there's always more to do and everything but uh this last week i was successful and on thursday night uh after being done with you know preparing and work and all of that i went out and my second daughter violet she's starting her softball season so is my youngest daughter june but Uh, my second daughter she's moving up a level and so her coach wanted to like meet the team and everything and so we went and we were sitting at a uh, baseball field or a softball field in seaside catino park in seaside and we're sitting there and the coach is talking to all these little girls and everything we're getting pumped up about the season good guy you know just sharing with them and um, you know taking leadership and everything but I was just kind of sitting there just kind of watching and l- kind of looking out onto this field we were like in the bleachers and I'm looking out on the field and uh, the field is just like right now I mean it'll be fixed up eventually but like right now it's just covered with weeds all over the place you know just weeds everywhere and the field just like looking pretty scuzzy you know it's not ready for baseball softball season yet you know it's just not looking good and then like I'm looking around a little bit more and I'm seeing like, you know, uh evidences of drug, you know, use, abuse, dealing, you know, things like that and just kind of, you know, you see that a little bit. And just kind of seeing that, seeing some homelessness, that kind of brokenness, seeing some evidences of poverty, you know, things like that. These are things that you see kind of anywhere and everywhere. You can find evidences of that. I think this is part of the reason why we love nature so much is that when you get into nature, you kind of feel like maybe you are seeing something that is pristine. But the reality is in every single situation that we're in, whether we're in the beauty, the gorgeousness of like Big Sur, where we feel like we're in some untouched you know, place and all of that, or whether we're in a place that you're able to maybe You more visibly see some of the effects of the fall and sin and all of that. The reality is, sin, it's everywhere. It's everywhere and it's colored everything. Even if you're out in the wilderness and you're just, you know, feeling like this is untouched, pristine, you know, kind of stuff. I would just encourage you, like, watch the nature channel or something from a little while. Watch animals killing each other and, you know, eating each other. Watch, you know, just, you know, natural disasters occur. Like the, the fall of man has affected and influenced everything. And what we're learning here in this section of the book of Romans is that every human being on earth, in every situation, every background, every backdrop, everybody needs the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. So there's salvation for us, but it's found in the gospel. And what he's been explaining in these three chapters, Romans 1, 2, and 3, is that the wrath of God has been revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, Romans 1, 18. So God is angry about sin. Why? Because sin separates us from himself. He loves us he didn't love mankind, he wouldn't care about sin, but he cares about sin because he loves mankind. And what Paul then explained in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that the immoral pagan world is in need of the gospel. This is usually Romans 1, uh, 24 to 31. That's the section of the world that a lot of times Christians get most upset about. Uh, but that, that's a section of the population that needs the message of the gospel. But Paul goes beyond that. So that's not just the only part of the world that needs the gospel. So does the moral man, the moral woman, people that think that, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job, I'm trying to be a good person, and I don't want to do those things, so I've got morals. And he says, no, you yourself are in need of the gospel because you have these morals but you don't always keep them perfectly like God does. And God is righteous and there's no flaw in him. And everything that he knows to be right, he always does. There's a consistency there. So you need the righteousness of God as well because you also are a law breaker. And then we saw last week that the religious man The guy that, you know, he's got the Bible, he's got religious ceremonies, he's got church attendance, uh, he's got all of that. Uh, Paul tells us that even someone steeped in classic Judaism cannot be saved because of the works that they've done, because of the uh, just kind of situation that they're in, or the religious ceremonies that they engage uh, themselves in. No, every single person on earth needs to be saved from the wrath of God. From ungodliness, from unrighteousness, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so that's what Paul is announcing. Now, he's gonna kind of wrap up that line of thinking, this section that I've just for my own mind to have an outline or a flow in my mind, I've entitled it Gospel Need. He's going to wrap up this Gospel Need section. Uh, today uh, at the close of verse 20 and when we get to chapter or uh, verse 21 of this chapter next week we're going to see God's provision for the gospel so gospel provision but right now he's going to wrap up the concept of our need for the gospel by talking about a concept called sin and that we are under sin So, here are the questions that we are going to ask and try to see the answers to from what Paul says today. We're going to ask the question, first of all, what is sin? What is sin? And then, secondly, we're going to ask the question, how far has sin influenced the world that we live in? And then, thirdly, we're going to ask the question, how can I come to a knowledge of sin? The thing that you might say, though, before asking those questions is, why do I want to know any of that? Why is that an important thing for me to have an understanding of? Why wrestle with the subject of sin? Why why get that concept into my mind? Well, on one hand, part of the reason for it is because if you don't, you will never initially come to Jesus, right? I mean, if, if you have a low view of sin, you'll never initially come to Jesus, but also, secondarily, if you don't, and if you continue to have a low view of sin, you won't, I think, continually, repetitively come to Jesus to help you because you'll think that what you got going on in your mind and in your heart, it's all good and there's no need of redemption and change and sanctification because you have such a low view of sin. But also, I think, thirdly, There's a real help to understanding what you see in the world by understanding the doctrine of sin and having a a better picture of what it all is. Like for me, when I look at that field and I see all those weeds out there, I just, like I looked at that on Thursday night and I'm like, that's part of the result of sin. Just these weeds that are growing. This wasn't meant to be. And not only wasn't it meant to be, but something led to a field that is for children to play in and be able to laugh and just, you know, I was going to say frolic, but that's not really a word that I use. But, uh, you know, uh, they, to be able to do all of that, something happened here to where we let that go. And that is, I think part of sin. And when you see, you know, drugs and all of that, you're seeing the effects of sin in the universe and and, and, in the world. So let's look at the first question. Uh, what is sin and we'll look at it in verse 9 okay so he says he asked the question verse 9 what then are we jews any better off so that's a good question to ask because he just talked about the people of israel people under judaism and he really had he had asked at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1 uh is there any advantage is there is there no advantage to being a jew because after saying you know circumcision can't save you and all of that religious ceremony can't save you and having the Bible can't save you, the question is, well, is, is it even good to be an Israelite? And he says, oh, there are great advantages. We honor the people of Israel. We honor uh, that heritage. There's great advantages beginning with, he says, having the oracles of God. But then Paul says here, but there, there, there's an advantage there. But does that mean that we Jews, Paul is saying, because he's speaking as a Jewish man, he says, are we Jews any better off? In other words, are we better? So he says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so he keeps repeating that phrase, Jews and Greeks, he says, all Jews and Greeks are under sin. All are under sin. So every single person on on the face of the earth is under this thing called sin. We are under it. We can't escape it uh, except by the blood of Jesus Christ, but it just is here. And we are under this thing called sin. So the question then, what is sin? What is sin? I, I think one designation that we probably should mention is when we say this, we're talking about something that is moral. It's, it's moral evil. And what I mean by that is that uh, there's evil in the world that isn't really even in the classification of sin. It's more evil that's the result of sin. Like, for instance, I mean, we're living in California here, right? So what's, like, for me, I'm not waking up, you know, thinking uh, today might be tornado day, uh, but every once in a while I think today could be earthquake day, right? You know, because this is where we live. And when that kind of, when a natural disaster occurs, that is a result of sin. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, death entered into the world and disaster, natural disasters entered into the world. But an earthquake isn't sin in and of itself. It's not a moral evil. It's evil. It's the result of sin, but it's not sin. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about something that humans do and something that humans are. And decisions that we make and something that we ourselves are under, it is in the moral realm. And basically, it is a violation of God's perfect law. Maybe you've heard some of the root meanings of the word sin, and I'll discuss a couple of them right now. One of them is the idea of the the ancient word sin, meaning uh, the idea of meaning to miss the mark. All right, so you go out for target practice in ancient days with your bow and arrow. And you've got the target, and you try to hit the target. And if you miss the target, then you sinned. You missed the mark. You you couldn't make it. You sinned. So the idea here, what, what is sin? The idea of sin is missing God's mark. In other words, God is righteous. So how does that work for us? Is it like there's God's righteousness, and there's the bullseye, and each man... Each woman pulls up with our little bow and arrow in life, and we try to hit it. And we're just like, we're like, some of us are like kind of close, and some of us are a little off, but no one's ever gotten the bullseye except Jesus. And like, we barely missed the mark. Is that the way that it works? No. What we're learning about the righteousness of God and the sin of man is that it's more like we all have different kinds of bows and arrows. You know, you've got the immoral man, the moral man, the religious man. And some of us have a bow and arrow that can shoot a hundred and fifty yards. Some of us have a bow and arrow that can shoot 100 yards, and some of us shoot, have a bow and arrow that can shoot 50 yards, but the reality is, is that God's target is like 50 miles away, and we're all pulling out our bows and arrows, and you know, some people, like the moral man's like, I shot my bow and arrow, I shot my arrow further than you, but God says, well, you all miss the mark, and you missed it by a long shot. Okay, so that's part of what sin means, missing God's perfect standard and mark. Another kind of concept about sin is that it means to overstep a boundary, to overstep a boundary. So you see that pictured in the original sin, right? God spoke to Adam, and Adam then spoke to Eve. And the command was, you shall not eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So there was a boundary that God set. If you cross this boundary, that is sin. And so sin is the crossing of a boundary that God has designed. And then sin also, another kind of basic idea of it is that it's kind of the idea of falling. So before God, if there's righteousness, you can stand. This is what it says in uh, Psalm 1, that the righteous stand in the judgment. What that means is in the day of judgment, they have God's righteousness so they can stand. But sin means to fall, to fall short. And we'll see that actually uh, stated to us next week, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So sin is a missing the mark. Sin is an and overstepping the boundary and sin is a falling or a falling short of God's uh, perfect mark. Now this next thing I want to say about sin is really important because I think a lot of times believers don't get this concept inside of their minds and inside their hearts and this is the one that is so helpful for understanding the world and I think that if you can get this one inside your heart you'll become a compassionate person. Sin is not just an act, something that we do. It's a principle that is over the world. In in other words, sin is not just what we do, but it is naturally what we are. And uh, let let me quote Jesus to, to try to illustrate this. He said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, he said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So what he says is it originates within the heart. In other words, sin exists in there, but then sometimes is manifested out here. It it exists in our heart, but then sometimes we act out upon the principle that is inside of the human species. Maybe another way to to illustrate what Jesus is saying or what Paul is saying here about the fact that we are under sin is uh, I remember years ago, my parents, they had this dog. It was actually my sister's dog. And then, she, you know, kind of, when you buy your, your teenage daughter a dog, you need to understand that someday it'll be your dog. And uh, so it did, it became their dog. And it was this cute little uh, Brittany Spaniel uh, dog. And so she was bred to be a bird dog. And no matter how hard they tried, no matter how hard they tried to train her and all of that, she was just a bird dog. So I don't know what that really meant. I've never been able to figure it out. Like, does that mean that a bird dog is like a bird hunter or a bird, like, collector after the hunter kills the bird? I don't know. But all I do know, for her, it always meant when there was a bird around, she just flipped out. She lost it. It was hard for her to have any self-control at all because it was a principle that was inside of her. It had been bred into her to react in a certain way when birds were around. It was just there. It was just present. And in a sense, yes, we commit acts of sin, but so we commit sins, but The principle is inside of us. We have sin, is what Paul is saying. There is this thing called sin that we are under. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were, before Jesus, dead in trespasses and sin. And at the end of this, you know, kind of what we're asking the question, what is sin? What is this thing that we are under? It's inside of us. It's all around us. At the end of the day, sin is basically selfishness in one sense or another. It's an over-exaggerated attention to self interests and ahead of God's interests. This is important for us to understand because if we don't understand it, then we might walk around thinking that the things that we think are important for us, the stuff that we need, the stuff that we want, we might walk around thinking that that is just perfect and good and right without understanding that there is the possibility That that remnant of sin that is there, that Jesus is trying to extricate and deal with, like the Israelites when they went into the promised land and they're driving out the giants in the land and all of that systematically taking the thing that God had set aside for them our bodies under Jesus belong to him, and he is systematically wanting to go through and drive out the sin that exists there, the giants that are in the land. But we might go through life thinking, there is nothing to be dealt with. And the thoughts that I have and the the wants that I have, the desires of my heart, they are good, and they are right, and they're pure without realizing that, no, I came from a place called being under sin, and Jesus saved me from that, but he's also continuing to save me from that, and so it's very helpful for our own understanding to realize that our first natural proclivity was towards uh, just an extreme self-focus, and uh, that's i mean what, has anybody gotten over that completely no we're in the sanctification process if you know jesus even the godliest person among us who's been walking with the lord for the longest and you're just the closest to jesus than any of us and you've got the most just kind of purified out of your life there's still a lot of self there isn't there all right i'm asking the godliest person who are they i want to know Okay, so but it's just there. It's just there. So it's helpful to understanding ourselves and understanding our world that we live in. Why would that, why would this understanding lead us to compassion? Because when you have a low view of sin, you look out at other people and you say, look at the problem of sin. And you really look down. And there's a lack of compassion. But when you see how far it ran and that it ran really far inside your own heart, compassion comes because you realize this is a thing that has plagued every single person here on earth. And but by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved from it. So compassion really comes, I think, when you understand sin uh, better than before, okay? So that's a little bit about what sin is. There's more I could say there, but let's go on to verse 10. We need to move on uh, because we just did one. Verse. We're twenty-seven minutes into it, so let's move on to verse ten. Okay. Uh, The next question: How far has it gone? We're seeing a little bit of what it is, but how far has it gone? Well, three things I'm going to tell you, based on what Paul said. First thing you need to see there, though, verse ten. He said, "As it is written." Now, Paul does what rabbis used to do in his day, and now and then he just quotes. After he says, "As it is written," he quotes. A bunch of Old Testament verses. Um, Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what verse is being quoted, um, but for the most part, it seems like he's quoting seven Old Testament verses. It might be that six of them are from Psalms and one is from Isaiah, or it might be that one of them, the first one, is from Ecclesiastes, five are from Psalms, and one is from Isaiah. But The thing that I want to point out right now, which I'll bring up later, is he's quoting, he doesn't quote from Moses at all. He doesn't quote from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Law, the Pentateuch. He doesn't quote from that, the Law of Judaism. He quotes from the poetry in the Old Testament. And let's see uh, what he says. So, the first thing that he says in verse 10, as he quotes this, he says, as it is written, so he says, we're all under sin, everyone's under sin, Jew and Greek under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not uh, even one. One. So you know, you read that, and you might be tempted to just kind of right off the bat go, "Whoa, Paul, simmer down." You are the classic the glasses half empty kind of guy. It's not that bad, you know. And there's like, there's good people out there, and yes, there's sin. But look at the things that we can build and construct and look at the hospitals and look at the schools and look at, you know, not even like missions being done by people who have received the gospel, but good works that are being done by people who have not received the gospel. Like, Paul, how can you go on saying these things like there's no one who does good and there's no one who's righteous? No, not one. And if that is kind of the reaction in our hearts, which I think is really normal, it's kind of my first natural reaction until I just think a little bit more about Scripture and about the character of God. To ask that question and to say, Paul, whoa, hold on a second, I don't think that's accurate, probably means that we have too low of a view of what good is and what righteous is. In the life of Jesus, there was a time, you remember the story of the rich young ruler, you just nod your head, yes, because especially if you were here for the book of Luke, because we studied it, so you say, oh yeah, absolutely, that was a good sermon, I remember that, just tell me that right now, okay, so, but when we went through that, uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, this young man, and he said, what must I do, well, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus eventually went on to say to him, well, how about the commandments? You've heard the commandments. You know, honor your father and mother, he listed a few, and he says, the guy said to him, all these things I've done for my youth. Had he perfectly from his heart? No, he hadn't, but he thought that he had fulfilled the law. All these things I've done for my youth, and so Jesus wanted to help this guy see his guilt, his imperfection, that he was really, even though he did some good things, he wasn't really at his core good. He wasn't really at his core righteous. So Jesus then said to him, well, then take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus wasn't saying, if you want eternal life, sell everything and follow me. But what he was trying to get at was, if you want eternal life, you better see that you're guilty and that you need a savior, that you have a problem of sin inside your heart. So how can I reveal that to you? Well, one of the things that you're not to be is a covetous person. So let me touch the covetousness by talking to you, specifically, rich young ruler, about giving away everything that you have to the poor and following after me. And he was trying to reveal this guy's covetous heart so that he'd say, I'm not as perfect as I just said I was to Jesus. But the first thing that the guy said to Jesus was, good teacher, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you might remember that Jesus, what he said to him in response is he said, the first thing that Jesus said before, all those other things I just said he said, the first thing that he said was, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now when Jesus said that, he was trying to, A, get the guy to think about the fact that I'm in the presence of divinity, as he looked at Jesus, But B, he was also trying to get this man to understand that the standard of righteousness is not looking around and saying, who's a good person here? The standard of good is God. He always does the thing that is right. He has never done the thing that is wrong. And with that standard, we would then be able to say with Paul, I get it. There is none righteous. There is none good. No, not one. So the first thing that we need to see about how far it goes is, and this is the word that we could use for it, sin is universal. Sin is universal. It's impacted everybody. It's gone everywhere. It's impacted every single person. Sin is universal. I heard someone say recently that if you were to take the earth and you were to keep all of its dimensions, all, you know, the mountains, the valleys, you were to keep all of it, and you were to condense it in size, keep the scale, but condense it in size to so the size of a pool ball, a, a billiard ball. You took it and you condensed it down to that size. Apparently, what, what they said was, the the sens- sensory... Stuff That we got going on in our fingertips. If you ran your fingertips upon that ball, that planet Earth, you would not be able to feel the difference between the deepest valleys and Mount Everest. It would feel like a smooth thing in your hands. And and the reason I'm saying this is because so often we think, well, some people are good, some people are not so good. And what the Bible is saying, no, we're all under sin and compared to God, it's like, it's a level playing field. It's a level playing field. No matter how high you've ascended, no matter how low you've gone, it is a level playing field. We are all Uh, You know, born in sin before God, there is a guilt uh, before us, uh, before God. Sin is a universal thing that has influenced everyone. He's using words like none, no one, no one, not one, all together, not even one. So it's universal. Now then, look at what he says in verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So he talks there about the tongue, the throat, the lips, the mouth. And isn't it true that so much of what sin is, it comes out of the vocal cords, doesn't it? It comes out with the mouth. It's kind of like that first line of just like revealing what's in there. You ever just said something that you're like, whoa, that, that's some, there's something bad in there. As it comes out of your mouth, you just realize, whoa, the Lord still is just, he's dealing with this sin inside my heart. That I would say such a thing, that I would think such a thing uh so he's and then he so he's saying about the mouth that death is there lying is there poison is there curses are there bitterness is there so much sin so much pain comes from the mouth by the way this is part of what jesus christ is in the process of redeeming amen he wants our mouths to become life-giving life-producing christ-honoring grace-giving i 'm um, thinking of fathers right now and just thinking about the fact that Jesus wants to use your mouth to not you know infect children and hurt children, but to build them up and to encourage them and to uh, bless them. And, you know, last week when I was thinking about Romans 3, the 2 and 3, the religious man, I just, you know, please don't let a religiosity get a hold of your fatherly heart and negatively impact your children with that level of legalism. It drives them from Jesus. You have to give them grace and gentleness and forgiveness and love and compassion. You have to give them discipline, absolutely, but you've also, it's got to flow from relationship. All right, so uh, this isn't part of the sermon. It's just a freebie kind of added there <laughs> under the side, but he's saying about the mouth, the tongue, and then uh, he goes on to say, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace uh, they have not known. So their feet and their paths and their way. So the mouth of man, but also the ways of man are given to sin. So we've already seen that sin is universal. We see that from this, but what's Paul saying here? He talks about the mouth, the lips, the ways, the feet. These are body parts, by the way, that When God made them, they were designed to bring God glory. We were going to use our mouths to praise God. We were going to use our hands to serve God. We were going to use our feet to go where God wanted us to go. But sin takes that away from us, and we use our mouths and our feet, our hands, our bodies for things that do not bring God glory. That's the problem of sin. I think a way that we could look at what Paul is saying here is that sin is not only universal, but it is pervasive it gets into every nook and cranny of who we are. It gets into our hearts, it gets into our mouths, it gets into our eyes, it gets into our feet, it gets into our hands, it gets into us. And so this helps us because so much of what society is trying to do with this is to try to polish it up and try to refurbish this. And what Paul is helping us see is what we really need is regeneration, (laughs) We have to be born again, and then we need to continually come to the Lord so that he might sanctify. We're seeing the dire situation uh, that we are uh, in. Now, this doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we could have been. When I came to Jesus, I could have been even worse. But it's that I'm sold unto the thing that could have taken me there. So there's a remnant to us because we've been designed by God, we're made in His image, that you might see some decent things or good things, but the reality is sin is pervasive. It affects everything. It gets inside of all of us. And then finally, the last thing, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin is universal. Sin is pervasive. But sin is basically ungodly. What God is saying here that there's no fear of me before their eyes, as he's saying, he isn't saying that there are those who just don't even believe I exist. That's not what he's saying. Uh, God will talk about that at other places in his word, but he's not talking about that here. He's saying, in reality, sin makes people never truly seek me at all. There's no room for, for me in their thoughts. Now this is helpful because as I see how far gone and how deep sin goes, there is no fear of God before their eyes, it helps me to understand that my natural man doesn't want to have anything to do with God, but that as I've been redeemed, the spiritual part of me, the new creation inside of me, that is the part of me that wants and desires God, the part of me that has been born again, and so I want to, as Romans 12 tells me, I want to... Give my body to the Lord daily as a living sacrifice so that he might continue this process of sanctification in my life so that I could be changed and transformed. Because my natural bent is not to want God. Or to even really think like this. You know, years ago, there was like this time where people started, uh, this is like years ago in the church, they started rewriting some of the hymns. And the reason they were doing it is that the hymns, they felt like it was a little too hardcore. And a softer version of the church, a more liberal version of the church, was kind of getting in there. And some of the the toned-down versions of the hymns even might even be a little too hardcore for a lot of people in our modern time. But when you hear words like hell and guilt and sin and brokenness, when you hear words like depravity and uh, guilt and blood and death, when you hear words like that, there's a natural tendency within our hearts to want to say, ah, I don't want to talk like that. I don't want to think that way about mankind or about humanity. We want to talk about power and joy and friendship and love. We want to highlight that. But the reality is you Those are great benefits of the gospel message, but you don't get there until you get the guilt and the death and the blood and the sin. And when you see that, then the, then it's like, Oh, this is so good. So much joy and love and friendship and grace and companionship. So he's taking us to a really dark place so that we can just see the reality. Amen? It's a good thing that Paul is doing for us. He's just under inspiration. He's pointing out the reality of the situation. Now let's close with our last two verses. So this is sin. This is what it is. And this is part of, you know, we're just looking a little bit at how far it's gone and what it does to us. And let's just pause for a second. Don't you just do you see this everywhere? Doesn't this explain a lot? It's just kind of, this is the world that we live in. There's just this thing called sin. Uh, So what's next then? How do we discover this? All right, well, here's what he says, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin now part of the reason i pointed out to you earlier that when paul quoted all those seven verses that he didn't quote from the book of moses the books of moses he didn't quote from the torah the classic law of judaism is because I wanted to help you see that what he was quoting from was something bigger, so that when we see in verse 19 that the law speaks to those who are under the law, we wouldn't be tempted to say, oh yeah, uh, Judaism, Jews, Israelites, they're under the law, but not us. Paul has actually shown us through this whole passage that even the moral Gentile who says to himself, like, I shouldn't steal from that person because they would not like it, that would be wrong. The person that says that When they have covetousness in their heart or they don't do that or they cut a corner, they are breaking the very law that God has revealed to them and that they know about. So even on an island where they've never had a missionary or a Bible study or anything like that, there is a law that has been revealed that renders, he says here in verse 19 and 20, every mouth stopped. Every person accountable to God, no one through that law justified in his sight since through the law comes uh, the knowledge of sin. So now we discover this is how we learn about the problem that we're in. You see, we're enslaved and under sin, Paul says, but here's God's grace. He sent the law. He sent the law. Why did he send the law? Why did he give the law? Whether it's the law that's revealed in a man's conscience, a law that, like we saw in Romans 1, is revealed just in nature, or a law that was revealed in Judaism or in the religion through the Ten Commandments. why? What is the purpose of that law? Was it God saying, hey, you, you guys are under sin, so... I want to show you a way to get out of it. Here's the law. Keep it, and you will get out of sin. No, that's not it. Paul is saying the reason that that law was given was so that we would get a knowledge of sin. Why do we need to have a knowledge of sin? Or as Martin Luther said about the book of Romans, why is Romans trying to magnify sin? Why is this being held out to us? Why is this being shown to us as a big deal that's infected all of us? Why is that important? Well, because without a knowledge of sin, because here's where we're going. Verse 21 and following, we are going to be reading and studying some jaw-dropping doctrines, some beautiful things that God has done for us. But here's the deal. You just won't enter into it without first having a knowledge of sin. But when you get a knowledge of sin, you go, whoa, I'm under this. I can't save myself. I have a grave problem. Who can help me? who can help me? And the glorious help for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. All right. So we need this gospel message. And I think that partly what God is doing right here through Romans 1 through 3, remember what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned? What was the first thing they did? They covered themselves, right? To try to hide. Like, we're not, we're, you know, there's a shame they try to cover themselves. God is saying, I'm gonna uncover all of that so that you'll feel it, so that you'll run to me, so that you'll come to me. So this is pretty incredible that in the midst of all this, God's saying like, this is what I see, but I still want you. I still love you. I'm still calling you. I'm still desiring you. The way to me is through the blood of my son being shed for you. So pretty cool, amen?